Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books and Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkhorn. More importantly, I have the pleasure today of speaking with Professor Ruth Harris. Uh, She's Professor of Modern History at Oxford, also a Senior Research Fellow at All Souls College. We'll be speaking about a fascinating, substantive new contribution called uh, Guru to the World, The Life and Legacy of Vivekananda. Um, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. Now, first things first, how did you get interested in researching this figure, Vivekananda? It's, it's a very good story and a good tale. Um, I, I started off as a French historian, and there were two things that happened. I was working on Romain Roland, who was a famous pacifist, and I saw that he had an extraordinary correspondence with Gandhi. And then I saw that he spent a decade before he became a fellow traveling communist working on Vivekananda and Ramakrishna. And that opened up this whole world to me and I couldn't leave it. And I had already many, many older interests in the whole debate over science and religion in the 19th century. And I saw that the Indian contribution to the study of evolution, to the study of mind, to the study of consciousness that people talk about as a Western problems was enormous. Um, And then I started meeting all these extraordinary Indians here in Oxford. We have a lot of them. It's a, you know, it's a global university. And I was so struck by how they all knew Mill, Marx, Weber, and I had never even heard of Vivekananda. And I thought, oh my God. And they said, hey, Vivekananda's uh, household name in India. Everyone knows who Vivekananda is. And I suddenly, re- I suddenly realized that they were culturally ambidextrous and I was a provincial. And it was out of those concerns that I began to work on Vivekananda. And then it's hard when you start reading his letters not to be captivated. The man was very charming, very interesting, and very provocative. And I like working on provocative people. It's very important for historians to do so. They have to feel both engaged and discomfited. And Vivekananda supplied that for me. Without question, he was a dynamic and um, larger-than-life personality. Uh, as as the records indicate by all accounts. Um, so on the one hand, um, you know, let's put it this way. So there have been a number of, um, there, have, there has been a work on Vivekananda and quote unquote his life and legacy. What would you say is the substantive contribution of this work? This book has three major concerns. The first is to let people from our world in North America and in Europe learn about and discover somebody they really don't know, or maybe only heard when they did some yoga in a yoga class and people mentioned Vivekananda. 
And the second is to give Indians who've been really generous in their help, a vision of Vivekananda's global mission and what he actually did when he came this way. And the third thing is to really think through our thoughts on missionizing. Are we, we think always of the West missionizing Asia, which by the way, was a very hostile terrain to Christian missionizing. Asians didn't want to become Christians on the whole. And instead, what I wanted to show was the influence and impact in the other direction. I mean, I could go on and on with all the things I want to show about the importance of women in creating his version of Hindu universalism, which I think is key. The idea of why it is that we do yoga and assume it is part of our spiritual landscape, but don't really understand where it comes from or how extraordinary it was as, as, as an innovation. Um, I also want to think about Vivekananda in terms of modern political thought in India. And finally, for Indians, I want to give a much broader perspective on Vivekananda um, because not only do they not know about the Western debates, but in recent years, he's been taken over very much by Hindu nationalists. And talking to older um, Hindu Indian colleagues, for many, he was an inspiration for their socialism and communism. And I want to restore the variety of his legacies so that Indians see his multifaceted nature and not just the virile man-making side that has now been spoken about in contemporary India. Could you tell us a bit about your process while writing this book? What were your sources? How did you go about collating them, etc.? Well, it's interesting. I really traveled to many, many places. I went to uh, San Francisco. I went to Hollywood, to these Vedanta societies. I looked at all this correspondence, but I also uh, went to Balore in, in India, where the, the math was created, the mission in math. I also went to Greenacre, where he, he uh, initiated his first sannyasins in America. I went to Greenacre, where he first taught yoga under the Swami's pine. And everywhere I went, I tried to get records. But my main records um, were often memoirs and letters. And that was something very important to me because I was trying to understand not only Vivekananda in terms of empire or in terms of global history or in terms of gender, race, and religion, you know, all these abstract terms, but in terms of the nature of a society which was based on very powerful human interactions. And so the book is really based and argued um, as a discussion of spiritual love stories. And that's a very, very important aspect of the work. It's it, it concentrates on the effective. It shows the connectivity in the global society of the late 19th century was often based on these forms of disciple guru connections. And I show how important they were to creating a movement and how interesting the people were and how little we can generalize about them. Because if we really want to get at their inner lives and subjectivity, we have to respect them and their beliefs. And that's not always an easy thing for historians to do. What you just touched on there is um, 
at least to my mind, a, a very important aspect of, um, uh, firstly, this particular work, uh, this research, but also, uh, and you would know better than I would, my area of Sanskrit narrative, but also what I perceive to be an important uh, methodological intervention or, or, or diversion or enrichment, however you want to think of it. So say a bit more about this idea of uh, affect and where it has traditionally uh, existed, if at all, in, in your discipline and how you're using it. And, you know, for a broader public and maybe even some of our colleagues in, in other subfields, why is that so crucial to the work and, and, and to this moment in history? What I find fascinating is that when I was growing up and doing history, we avoided anything that was effective or anecdotal because it was perceived as not objective. And I would like to suggest that bias is our friend. <laughs> As an historian, that is what we are meant to do. We cannot escape bias. So what is important is understanding the nature of that bias. And the effective is so important because how can we even begin to penetrate uh, a world of spirituality, which is based on deep feeling and hoped for connection with the divine without approaching the issue of affect. And what I think is so interesting about these people is many of them were lapsed Christians or getting alienated from Christianity. Vivekananda himself uh, had been what, what people call a Brahmo. Um, he had been a, a kind of reformist Hindu that many Hindus wouldn't even regard as Hinduism. You know, he was, quote, a rationalist, and he encounters this extraordinary charismatic guru named Ramakrishna, who, who is enchanted with him. And what I try to suggest is that it is through this relationship that lasts for five years, almost, that Vivekananda is transformed, that he recovers much of the aspects of his non-rationalism, and... Um, transforms them and reconverts them into a language when he goes West that Westerners can understand. And, um, but without Ramakrishna, th this would have been impossible. And I think also what's interesting is that, you know, you have the encounter between an illiterate Brahmin, someone from the countryside and the ultimate intellectual highly educated, English educated in a Scottish missionary school, perfectly bilingual. People actually thought he was Irish at times. I mean, it was extraordinary. Um, and yet these apparent differences also made for extraordinary um, spiritual possibilities. And they both recognized it, you know, Vivekananda talks about it often. And I don't think you can deny the importance of these kinds of combinations um, you know, and also Vivekananda always saw himself as inferior to Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna was the avatara. He was the God man on earth. Vivekananda was the disciple. And yet he was an enormous personality himself, highly charismatic and someone who really wowed people both East and West. He may have saw himself as um as the uh, uh, perennial uh, disciple, uh, uh, having said that, um, there's a reason why the book is called Guru to the World. Well, I call it Guru to the World, and I take this very provocative title for, for an important reason. 
he is regarded as the guru to the world. But India is also regarded as the guru to the world. And what I try to talk about is the convergence between this vision of Eastern wisdom, that somehow the West is materialist and the East is spiritual. He both uses that to very, he deploys it to very helpful effect. And at the same time, he is constrained by it because he, there's an essentialism about what India is, you know, that India is only spiritual and that's also dangerous for him. And what I try to chart is that way of, uh, of trying to be both not a cliche, you know, and risking being patronized, um, reduced, and seen only as an essential stereotype of a civilization. And I think even today, you know, India is still, people talk about Vishiguru, you know, that it is the, the guru to the world. Um, I do think that we in the West still believe on some level that India has things to teach us. And in another moment, there are many people who just dismiss India. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the two things I think are very, very problematic. And that's why I called the book a guru to the world. Being a guru to the world is both a blessing and a curse. And Vivekananda's life, I think, exemplifies the vicissitudes of that contradiction and paradox. What, if anything, was difficult about writing this book? Everything was difficult. Everything was difficult and everything was stimulating. It was difficult because I had written a book on the miracles and apparitions at Lourdes, and I, I'm of Jewish origin, and I spent years learning about Mariology to do this book. But I had no idea what it would mean to engage in Hinduism and its metaphysical heights. You know, the first time I perused the Gita, my heart was pounding. And I, I had to go constantly cap in hand to so many Indian friends and say, what does this mean? How can you explain it? So that was very difficult, as you can imagine. And then what was also difficult was realizing without knowing it because of my naivety, that I walked into a minefield of different interpretations, different political positions, that Vivekananda is alive still for Indians in ways that Westerners can't understand um, and part of a living heritage. And that was also both stimulating and very, very hard. And then it was hard to um, try to write about these spiritual love stories without it becoming, quote, touchy-feely. I wanted it to be analytical. I wanted it to be convincing. I wanted it to be um, important and not something that could be pushed aside. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So those were the things that were the most difficult. There were many other things that were difficult, but that was the most difficult. Um, and But I loved writing it because all my preconceptions fell away. I mean, when I realized that cultural relativism was not what Vivekananda was preaching, but different forms of universalism, my eyes opened uh, and yet, you know, um, seeing him and also 
you know, being both angered by some of the things he said about women, about Muslims, you know, these things were also part of engaging with him in a deep and serious way. What are some of these spiritual love stories that you refer to? Well, I think the most, besides Ramakrishna and Vivekananda, is the one between Vivekananda and Margaret Noble. She is, she, you know, instead of ending the book with him and his death, I tried to eschew the idea that this was just another great man biography. And the story continues with this Scotch-Irish disciple who leaves everything. She's a progressive school teacher. She leaves everything in London and follows him to India. And, and what I show is that she's, she is like his intellectual daughter and spiritual daughter, but it is extremely difficult for her to understand her role in this very foreign society and with a man who is a guru. I mean, Vivekananda was remarkable in trying to adapt the guru-disciple relationship to non-Hindu societies and people. It's an extremely difficult thing to understand if you're not a part of a certain culture. And I, I call their relationship the clinch. I mean, she was forever devoted to him and yet she, she goes away, she comes back. Um, and this constant balancing act of love and disagreement, I think was very important to her intellectual creativity and to the way Vedanta in the West um, was attached to many avant-garde things, be it sociology, planning, education, all these things that, uh, biology, all these things that I discuss in the book. So that's, what, that's another one of these really important relationships. I mean, she becomes a famous Indian revolutionary figure. And what's amazing is she's better known in India, even though she was Scotch-Irish, than she is in the West. Nobody's even heard of her, which just goes to show the remarkable configurations and possibilities of, of, this, of this global network. We tend to tell the stories of that which uh, perpetuates our culture, civilization situation. So perhaps, perhaps it's unsurprising. It is, but it's hard. But I was trying to be a little bit counterintuitive. Do you see mm. what I mean? And Absolutely. she, yeah, and that's the whole thing. Um, to have the historic, you have to have a kind of historical imagination to think what might happen. And what I think is really interesting is that instead of going to India and thinking, oh, there's plague, and in her neighborhood there is, there's plague and thinking, oh, these Indians are degenerate. On the contrary, she thinks that the British, that's it, she loses her loyalty to, to Britain. She thinks, how could they have permitted this kind of horror? And it's from there that she, be, she starts to feel that she's becoming an Indian, which is a remarkable thing, given that this is a very, very, very British school teacher, you know? So there's a kind of personal transformation that is essential to understanding what happens to her and to the movement. I typically ask this question a little later in the interview, but I, I feel that based on what you just said, it might, this might be a good spot for it. Who might most resonate with this book, benefit from this book, be interested in this book? You know, who's this book for in that sense? Well, I've written it, I hope, for a lay intelligent public. But I, it has a lot of new scholarship in it, too. I mean, one of the things that some of the work that I've done on William James and Vivekananda 
is very important to um, historians, intellectual historians in America. It's very important. This is, we're going to go through the specialists. It's extremely important, in my view, for um, feminist historians and women's historians, because the middle chapters are to do mostly with women. And I have a central chapter on women East and West. And I talk about the kinds of strange alliances that occur with between a woman like Sharada Devi, who's uh, Ramakrishna's consort, and who is, now, is still considered a goddess in India and is venerated profoundly, and these strange, often strange New England you know, aficionados who come and see her as the new Virgin Mary and believe that Hindu universalism is the new creed for the world peace and for um, tolerance and remarkably anti-colonialism. I mean, when you first meet them, you think, oh, these women should have all been missionaries in Christian churches. And then you see that they flip. And a lot of that has to do with Vivekananda's presence. So there's uh, women's historians. I also think it's really important for Indianists, South Asianists, um, British historians of empire, because it tells a different story from the usual and, and tries to, to really distinguish between the British story and the American story. And um, above all, American historians, I really think they need to discover uh, Vivekananda and see um, Jamesian pragmatism, uh, Roycean idealism in a new light um, and re recognize the importance of these Asian interlocutors who kept on insisting that there were different ways of seeing things in the world. So that's what I hope. I mean, I also hope that everybody who's interested in yoga will read it. <laughs> and I also hope that people who just want a good yarn will read it because as you, as you saw, it's an extraordinary story, isn't it? I mean, he arrives in Chicago, he doesn't know where he's staying, and he ends up, you know, sleeping in the street until some Chicago lady picks him up and takes him to the World Parliament. You know, it's, it's these, he meets extraordinary people, and he has a personal flair that is, you know, undeniably important in, in, in making him this star. And yet, at the same time, he's totally unavailable to them because he's a sannyasin. I mean, there are many women who, who fall for him, they're attracted to him, and yet he has to, as he explains, withdraw. And, you know, he, he's prone to attachment, he says so, and yet he has to explain that he must remain detached, uh, at the same time not making fun of people's love for him. Fascinating, a fascinating and extraordinary figure, without question. Could you say a bit more about how the American historical story differs from the British historical story. What I find fascinating is that he doesn't want to go to Britain because he assumes that they're all going to be, you know, like the British he knows in India, which he perceives as smearing, um, patronizing, and even a bit vicious, I think, at times. And yet when he comes to England, he's amazed in comparison to America, how many people know something about India? And he's right. There are Indian servants, Indian nannies, Indian 
men who've come back from India. He's particularly interested in, in, in military men who've come back from India, people who, who work on Sanskrit. Whereas in America, Sanskrit is emerging as a discipline and a very important discipline, especially in places like the University of Chicago. But until they see Vivekananda, they've never met an Indian. I mean, the Indians only start to arrive in California in the 1890s. So he is one of the first. And they're blown away because they cannot, literally by his physical appearance, they can't make a distinction between Aryan features and African-Americans. So, and also that's very hard for them because um, he's not allowed in many hotels in the South. And yet they all think he's terribly beautiful and they go on and on and on about his beauty and his education. So he's a package like no one else. Do you see what I mean? And of course he's Bengali. So like they have no idea that, you know, Calcutta is founded before their New England towns. Do you see what I mean? Uh, you know, they don't get it that it's a cosmopolitan hub. It's the center of the, you know, the, the Raj in Calcutta. And that he th- comes to New England and he thinks, my God, this is so provincial compared to Calcutta. Where he has people who are Armenians, Jews, um, Muslims, um, Sikhs, he has everybody. So he tries not to show them at times that they are from a small world. Um, But what I find interesting is that he actually is very patient. He grows to love them and he listens and he tries to understand. In the end, the people who are most helpful to him are not that the Americans give money and are very loyal but it's the British who come and help him so it's people like Margaret Noble who gives up her life to come to India and they they start another ashram basically up in Mayavati and the Himalayas the foothills in the Himalayas and this is a British couple very few Americans actually make the journey to live in India, but the British are not as afraid of doing that. So it's a very mixed bag. The British also um, at one moment seem to understand him, but at another moment um, treat him like um, a colonial underling. And when they do that, he gets furious and he rejects it. He also doesn't like it when the British tell him that a true holy man doesn't do this and doesn't do that. He says, I have the right to tell you (laughs) what an Indian holy man should do. Westerners don't have the right. And it's this rejection of their insistence that they know better than him that makes him very unusual amongst his fellow Indians at this juncture. So many parallels in scholarship. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Um, 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 in, in oh, you mean uh, in, in today's world? Well, well overcoming this um, internalized impulse among the best intentioned of us. Absolutely. To, to, to hear and honor indigenous voices and representations. That doesn't mean that they need to constitute one's analysis of the data, but you'll only be a better scholar if you could more clearly see and hear the data, especially when they're living, breathing human beings. Um, <laughs> That's right. And how do you do it without causing friction and, and, and you know, doing it with, with, a, with a, some sort of 
possibility. And that's why of, of connection. And that's why I find Vivekananda extraordinary because he could have become, he was angry at times, but mostly he tried to understand them. And he was often extremely hurt when they, they went after him. He really didn't, he really didn't like it. He, he, he found it very painful, but he was also determined to remain detached. On the one hand, um, who doesn't value their own sovereignty? Who wants to be treated as a subject, particularly an independent, intelligent force in their own right? And one can imagine that that would be, uh, that would just ruffle one's feathers to be treated as a subject by virtue of nationality or ethnicity or what have you. On the other hand, um, is that not the mark of somebody pursuing spiritual evolution? This persistent penchant towards detachment from from um, ruffled feathers absolutely and i think that's i think what you say is 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 true um but i also think he's interesting because he's trying to do all this simultaneously um but i also think that and i try to talk about this a lot in the book is that it makes him ill (laughs) the fact is is the desire to the anger that comes with not being listened to, as well as the difficulty and constant attempt to follow Ramakrishna, who always said, you must speak to people in their own language. That was the, that was the universalism for Ramakrishna. To find a way of communicating meant that he was always striving to find a way. Reach of, people where they are. Exactly. And that's, as we all know from constant interaction, it's deeply exhausting. Um, and he talks about, you know, he's insomniac. Um, he gets, he becomes highly diabetic. He, um, at one point he goes blind because back in India, because he can't, he, he, he is a diabetic symptom. Um, he is constantly fighting his weight. Um, and um, he's nervous. He talks about being very nervous. Um, and it's, it is very difficult because, you know, the business of straining constantly to be good and to reach people and at the same time to maintain a sense of sovereignty. You know, it was exactly, that is a perfect word. And I think that that's another thing that really concerned him. I mean, because he was interested in India's sovereignty and how India and Indians could gain sovereignty, but not through necessarily through um, political parties, but through a spiritual and um, activist engaged um, love of one's fellow man, the divine in the other. And I think that that was very, very important to him. Perhaps unsurprising then that um, that some decades later, Gandhi comes along and says, hey, you know, our political sovereignty or self-rule must be implicated in our individual or spiritual autonomy, sovereignty. Our personal growth is, 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 is a, a requisite of our political growth. Um, but let me just add there, because I think it's fascinating what you just said is that they're contemporaries and we forget they're very close because poor Vivekananda dies in 1902 and Gandhi dies in 1948 from an assassin's bullet. 
Um, so it's so interesting because we don't know what will happen with Vivekananda during the independence struggle. We have sort of hints, but it's, we don't know the full course, uh, the trajectory. He's very young when he dies. Yeah, the, the sort of life that he lives strikes me as not dissimilar for someone like Mozart, who lives probably about the same number of years, but is so impactful and so prolific. Mm. It's sort of like, it's sort of like <laughs> they gave, he signed a contract on the way in. Do you want to be uh, um, moderately influential over 80 years or <laughs> twice as influential over 40? Um, <laughs> and, and, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think you've said something quite insightful uh, because it, um, insightful in that it understands perhaps the connection between physical ailment, physical malaise and emotional malaise. And but but say more about it. What do you feel made him sick? Well, I don't know. I mean, of course, I don't no, want. No, it's conjecture, yeah. of course. Yeah, I don't want to but, reduce but, but, him or diagnose I, him or anything. But I sure. do think he says constantly in his letters, um, "I'm, I'm, I'm sick. I can't sleep, and um, I can't sleep. I um, the food is bothering me." He, when he's young, he is a sannyasin and he travels and it's very difficult to do the traveling. And, um, you know, he has terrible fevers. And it's not clear if he ever recovers fully from any of these pressures. But I do think that you, there is one famous letter where he has a, um, an acolyte who's, who's driving him crazy, a man named Leon Landsberg, Landsberg and he leaves um, he's living with Leon Landsberg and he goes to stay with the doctor and there, and Leon Landsberg comes into the room and Dharmapal's pulse starts to go much harder. And the doctor says, wow. <laughs> because one of the things about Landsberg is he doesn't want to shout at Landsberg because he's an acolyte and he's doing his best, but he is exhausted and he is hard. Um, he doesn't return to England in time for another acolyte because he says, my health just won't permit me. And, you know, he comes back the third time and he, he spends a lot of the time under uh, the, with under magnetic treatment and just eating it, good food and walking in California. And so there's a limit to what he can do. And yet everyone who knew, knows him, he doesn't complain. He admits to his nearest and dearness some of these women that he is he is he is actually you know unwell and by the end he just says i'm failing you know he he tells a, a famous patron in india my mother i will you help her with some something because i'm afraid i may die you know um and i think that we don't understand yet the nature between this kind of strain and physical um, malaise, but it certainly was something that he was deeply aware of. And that's why he was not in favor of Hatha yoga. He thought it was too concerned with athleticism and not enough with spirituality, which I think is fascinating. You know? Fascinating indeed. A testament, uh, uh, I feel it's a testament to either his force of personality or spiritual prowess that he can be so sick but persist and exude such magnetism and wellness and um, contagious um, vitality. Yeah. There's so much vitality in this field. Um, what is the legacy of Vivekananda, would you say, to this day? 
I should, I wanted to title the book Legacies. <laughs> But my publisher said, no, it's too much for people. I think, Can you tell I read the book? But go on. <laughs> yeah. I think there are so many legacies. I think that uh, without ridding Hinduism of its um, many traditions, he prioritizes uh, Advaita Vedanta. And so this, this vision of formlessness is very important in for him in united in, in his universalist project because if you have too many symbols and too many objects then you can't get together because people will fight about the symbolic when they should be concentrating on the divine but at the same time he doesn't sneer at others who need idols what he calls idols he uses the term not me images and he comes back and he says, look at you Christians, you know, you have Christ in your churches on the cross. You know, you need visual representations too. Um, even Protestants, when they pray, envisage the cross. You know, he, he insists that it is not that Indians are, you know, heathen and, um, uh, and idolaters. So that's one thing. He changes that. He also endorses practical Vedanta, this idea that it is not just uh, the transcendental search that's important, but the, the daily engagement with loving God through loving your fellow persons. And I think this is extremely um, important for changing the direction of, quote, Hindu modernism, whatever. I don't use the term Neo-Vedanta because it insults some people. So that's important. And I also think he's important because he, this notion of detachment is also based on a vision of activism, which means that people can suffer and sacrifice for greater cause. And that's very important to him as well. Um, I also don't think that we would have had uh, yoga the way we do in North America, I mean, without Raja Yoga. I mean, Raja Yoga, people always say, oh, you see how you know, he, 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 how much he was influenced by the West and he takes over, you know, he takes, he's just Westernized. But actually I see it the opposite way. I see him deploying Western terminology, making it possible for Westerners to approach some very difficult concepts in Hinduism. Um, and through an intelligence that's able to understand Jamesian psychology and many other things. So I see it very differently. In fact, I don't like that. I, I also think we have to understand that he's creating a global amalgam. He is, and also he's on the one hand creating a global amalgam and on another level, he's trying to find a way of situating Vedanta in individual contexts. So it's the local and the global that is constantly on his mind. Um, and he does this quite intuitively. And I think these are some of his legacies. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, is there anything else about the book you'd like us to touch on before we close today? I think, um, let me just see. Uh, yes, I think there's one thing I'd like to say, and just to go back to what I said at the beginning, which is I don't think we can understand Vivekananda or our world without understanding this constant, what I call a contrapuntal relationship. The melodies go in and out. And this idea that we are, do the West did something to India and India did nothing to us. And they were just subject and had no, you know, 
these are the kind of cliches that I hope the book will um, overturn. And at the same time, I hope that we really do pay attention to uh, these women actresses, actors, because they are extraordinary, um, even though they are not remembered in history. You know, and he couldn't have done anything without them, and he knew it. He constantly was saying so, and he also had tremendous amount of ideas from them. So there is also this collaboration that I think really needs to be understood as much as the limitations. The fact is, it's different to be an American and it's different to be an Indian. <laughs> and they reckon, and I think that, um, you know, you can say, oh, this was all just wonderful and everybody loved one another, but there was also a tremendous amount of tension and difficulty. What's interesting is they kept on trying to communicate. What a lovely set of ideas to end upon, um, uh, but perhaps one of the most resonant um, internalized ideas is that uh, whether persons or nations, uh, encounters can't exist without both parties being impacted. It's a two-way street. It's a two-way street. Thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you. It was wonderful. Thank you. For those listening, of course, we've been speaking with Professor Ruth Harris on her brand new uh, 2022 Harvard University Press publication called Guru to the World, the Life and Legacy of Vivekananda. Until next time, uh, keep well, keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating the legacy of this profound figure. Take care.